Okay, we are we're in the middle of our ongoing study on Christ in the Old Testament, and we're currently focused on Christ being revealed in type and shadow, which are which are a prophetic symbols in the Old Testament that point forward to either the person or work of Christ or some combination of of both of those. And uh, we're we're currently looking at the four great prophetic structures that are found in the Old Testament that God intended to, to point forward to Christ. Those structures are the Garden of Eden, the Ark of Noah during the era of the flood, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and all the way up until the, the days of King David, and then uh, him handing over to his son Solomon the plans for the construction of the temple, the stone temple in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, what we ended up focusing on in our last study, toward the end of the study, is the progression that connects the uh, specific structures, starting with the tabernacle, uh, going to the temple, and then ultimately we, we saw this is all uh, ultimately found fulfilled in the New Covenant, the New Testament, in the church. And what we identified is that the similarity between these structures is that the, the uh, tabernacle and the temple are constructed in a similar pattern. They're, they're uh, serving an identical function. There are some differences, though, between tabernacle and temple. And, of course, there's a huge difference between Tabernacle Temple and the church that we'll, we'll be talking about more as we go on. For tonight's study, we're just going to look at the Tabernacle, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at part four of our study in the Old Testament structures, and we'll, we'll concentrate on what's the difference uh, prophetically, symbolically, between the Tabernacle and the Temple. Uh, but for tonight, as I said, we're going we're gonna to look at the Tabernacle. And then what we saw was in our as I said, as we were ending the study last week, is the concept being that between tabernacle and temple, uh, these structures, these prophetic structures, function in the biggest picture as the house of God. Meaning that God chooses to uh, reveal that he wants to live and dwell in the midst of his people. And in order to do that, he needs a private and personal space in the midst of his people. But his space has to be completely holy. Uh, he, he will not allow for the sake of um, not blurring the lines of what is revealed about his holiness and his righteousness. <clears throat> he will not allow defilement into his personal space. And so um, he ordained and ordered that Moses, starting with the tabernacle, that Moses um, build a structure for him that would serve the purpose of enabling the Lord to, to move into the camp of Israel. We saw that all the way through the Old Testament, <clears throat> in, the, in the days of the tabernacle, uh, just prior to the construction of the tabernacle itself, the the Lord was present with his people, but he was not present in the midst of his people. He was present in the, <clears throat> the, the imagery 
it was real, but nevertheless symbolic imagery of the pillar of fire and cloud that led them through the wilderness. And remember, I, I emphasized that the, the pillar of fire and cloud was always just outside of the camp of Israel, just always ahead of the camp, so that wherever the pillar of fire and cloud went next, the camp of Israel would follow that pillar of fire and cloud. And whenever the pillar rested, they would make camp, but they would make camp separate from his presence revealed in the, in the uh, pillar of fire and cloud until the tabernacle was constructed. And we went into all of the details of how the Lord revealed a very specific plan, a very specific blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle uh, in great detail, and that Moses was charged with the responsibility to oversee the project. He didn't do all of the, the handiwork himself. In fact, there were, there were a couple of very gifted men that the Lord called and assigned and gave special grace to to actually do the construction work. But Moses was responsible to make sure that they followed the plan, the blueprint that had been revealed to him on the mountaintop in the presence of the Lord and in the midst of that pillar of fire and cloud which rested upon the mountain. When Moses finished the work of the tabernacle according to the blueprint, do you remember what happened? And we focused on this from Exodus chapter 40. That pillar of fire and cloud, which was at that moment on the mountaintop of Mount Sinai and had been in, in front of the camp of Israel, that pillar of fire lifted from the mountaintop and came and positioned itself directly over the tabernacle, which was constructed in the midst of or in the middle of the camp of Israel. And it descended upon the tabernacle and then it filled the tabernacle. And of course, I've got here a, a, a top-down diagram of what the tabernacle actually looked like. In fact, I've left out two details here. I'll, we'll be going through all these details in a minute. All right, so when the pillar of fire and cloud settled upon this structure and filled this structure, what you've got there is an image of the Lord himself moving into his house. He's identified the structure as his house before he moves in, but once he moves in, now he's taken possession of it. And from that point forward, throughout all of the journeys of the children of Israel for the next 40 years in the wilderness, and for generations to follow, even after they entered the promised land, until the days of Solomon, this structure served as the Lord's house in the midst of his people, so that now you have the Lord dwelling, in a sense, symbolically, not technically yet, we're waiting for the new covenant, but you have the Lord dwelling in his people, in the midst of his people, rather than somewhere separate, somewhere apart, somewhere close by in proximity, but not actually in the midst of his people. Then we fast forwarded to the temple and the days of Solomon. We saw that just like God gave a blueprint, a revealed heavenly blueprint to Moses for the tabernacle, God gave a similar kind of blueprint to King David. And then King David was not allowed by the Lord to carry out the construction, but was ordered to pass it to his son Solomon, his son Solomon being a man of peace, all of that pointing forward to Christ, and then the idea being that uh, he would construct this permanent structure, the tabernacle being a movable structure, the temple being a permanent and, and one location only structure now in the city of Jerusalem. But when Solomon finished the work, 
we saw a similar response by the Lord to the temple as there had been prior uh, to that, to the tabernacle, which is even though for years and generations they, the, the children of Israel had not seen a visible representation of the pillar of fire and cloud that had led them originally through the wilderness, when the temple was finished, that pillar of fire and cloud reappeared in Jerusalem directly over the structure of the temple, which is similar in its layout to this structure in the tabernacle, and filled that structure just like the tabernacle had been filled. Then in our final portion of our study, we saw from the prophecies of Ezekiel how the Lord had revealed to Ezekiel that his relationship to his house was changing. And it was changing because the children of Israel were in a, um, a stubborn-hearted, hard-hearted, rebellious uh, relationship with the Lord. It had been for, for quite some time. It was why they were in captivity in Babylon, uh, Ezekiel being among the captives when he received this revelation. And the Lord was showing Ezekiel that he was moving out of his house. So what we've put together as a progression that leads up to what I want to start with tonight is that God moved in to the tabernacle, and then when it had fulfilled its purpose, its purpose being a movable structure for all the journeys of Israel until they settled the promised land, then the Lord moved out of the tabernacle in order to move in to the temple. The image, symbolically, is that the Lord never lives in two houses at the same time. He moved into the tabernacle, lived there symbolically until its purpose was fulfilled. He moved out of the tabernacle, moved into the temple, and he stayed there until its purpose was fulfilled. And then in the Ezekiel prophecy, he moved out of the temple. And some time later, he moved into a new dwelling place. And then that is extended without moving out into what is revealed in the book of Ephesians and in the book of 1 Peter and other places in the New Testament as God finally and ultimately moving into his permanent dwelling place, a dwelling place by the Spirit, but a spiritual temple, which would be his permanent home, we call the church. Now... I've left a blank here between temple and church. And I said we would start in the Gospel of John. Let's go there. John chapter 1. And it would be worthwhile to read all of the um, verses leading up to this, but for the sake of our time, I want to read just the key verse that I'm focused on, which is, John 1.14, very, very famous verse, very well-known verse, significantly important verse theologically. And it says, and the word, and this is referring back to chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is The word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring to. It's referring to Christ, but some specific special event in the life of Christ. It's what we call his incarnation. 
Now, there's a detail, and sometimes, you know, translations serve a good purpose for us. I'm glad to have translations of the Bible because I'm not a scholar in either Greek or Hebrew. And if it weren't for the help of Greek and Hebrew scholars, we would miss some critically important details that are hard to make obvious in an English translation. And there's one of those here in verse 14. And it has to do with the key word in verse 14, dwelt. Remember, I said that the big picture purpose of the tabernacle is the tabernacle was to serve as the earthly dwelling place of God. Then it was replaced by the temple, which served as the earthly dwelling place of God. And ultimately, we're heading to the church, which serves as an eternal dwelling place of God. But in between temple and church, there is a very important stage in the progressive moving in to a new house, so to speak, of God's revealed purposes in history, and that is Christ himself. So what happened is God moved into the tabernacle until his purpose was fulfilled for it. He moved out. He moved into the temple until his purpose was fulfilled for it. He moved out. Then at the incarnation in Bethlehem, he moved into Christ. When does he move out of Christ? Never, ever, ever. He moved into Christ in the sense of incarnation. We're talking about earthly dwelling place. So God moved into Christ, and this word dwelt is an interesting word that conveys the idea of moving into a house in order to live in it, to dwell in it. But the word, the Greek word that the Apostle John chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a word that literally could be translated this way. And let me read it with this translation. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Or you could translate it this way. The, earth, the, the, the word became flesh and in, intended among us meaning that the tabernacle was a tent-like structure. And that's the word that John chooses to describe the incarnation of Christ. The question is, is it just a random correspondence that, that interestingly, the incarnation is described as God moving into a tent when he moved into Christ? Or is there a purposeful and intentional progression of these concepts that were meant to link in a progressive way as we're observing God's work through history. And I I would definitely put this in the intentional category rather than a random correspondence. So the Lord moved from tabernacle to temple, from temple to Christ, and then this is ultimately leading to the church. But in our understanding, as it's revealed in God's word, church and Christ are connected so that God, thankfully, in order to move into the church, did not need to move out of Christ. Just like he moved out of the tabernacle, he moved out of the temple, he moved into Christ, and then he additionally moved into us. Not in the exact same way, because as he moved into us, it wasn't an incarnation, 
but there is a similarity in that both the physical body of Christ during his life here in this world and then in his resurrected body for all of eternity is a dwelling place of God, the church also functions as a dwelling place of God. So what's the connection between Christ and church? You could describe it as head connected to body, right? So when you look at me, you see I've got a head and you see I've got a body. Which one am I dwelling in? Yeah, I'm dwelling in my head and I'm dwelling in my body at the same time. And it's greatly to my advantage that the two aren't separated from each other, right? And in terms of structure rather than physical body, in in terms of structure, Paul links the two together in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that the church is now the temple of God and Christ is the what in relationship to that temple? The cornerstone, meaning the single most important and critical building block in that extended structure that now includes us. Peter then takes that same theme in 1 Peter chapter 2 and he describes that we are all like living stones but he's the chief or head cornerstone from which the whole body receives its sense of structure, meaning that in the ancient world, they would commonly, uh, to start a building project, they would first lay a cornerstone and everything, everything else was built off of that one stone. So every stone added was added in the proportions and direction that the cornerstone was establishing. So in that same sense, Christ and the church are still connected in terms of God's indwelling both Christ and the church at the same time. Now, let's look at one other passage before we go back to the Old Testament and look at the tabernacle details. Turn over, and this one we studied in some detail together, but it's been a long time. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. And in terms of the, the great events that mark the story of Christ in his in his life and work here in this world. This is the second of the great events. The first of the great events is the incarnation, you know, his birth in Bethlehem. What's the second great event in the story of Christ? His baptism, all right, by John the Baptist. We won't read the whole story of his baptism, but let's look at, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descend like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And of course, that voice from heaven was the voice of God, the father speaking in in spiritual description of the pleasing relationship that existed between him and his son. Um, What I want you to notice, though, is in verse 16, the importance, the spiritual significance in terms of this progression that we're laying out of why it is that in the baptism of Jesus, there was a visible representation of the Spirit of God that came and descended upon the Lord Jesus, and then it says, coming to rest on him. 
and I wouldn't expect you to remember this detail from our study all the way when we were back in Matthew three years ago, um, coming to rest on him signifies a permanent relationship, meaning the dove, the, 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 the spiritual representation of the dove coming to rest upon him wasn't the dove al- alighted upon him, was there for the rest of the afternoon, and then went away. The, the Spirit of God came to rest upon him. The Spirit of God filled him. The Spirit of God remained in him and upon him for all of the duration of his life in this world and, of course, continues now in his resurrected state. So what does this have to do with this progression? Well, in the tabernacle, there was a moment when the pillar of fire and cloud descended upon the tabernacle and filled it. For the temple, there was a moment when the pillar of fire and cloud descended upon the temple and filled it. For Christ, there is a moment in his personal history when now, not in the imagery of pillar and fire and cloud, because there's something different being conveyed by the filling of Christ, now it's in the form of a dove, which has its own spiritually symbolic connotations, dove being symbolic of what? Of peace. All the way back to the Noah's Ark account, right? When um, the Lord caused the waters to recede and Noah first sent out a raven from the ark and uh, it eventually didn't return to the ark because it found a resting place upon the, the, the corpses of those that were that were killed in the ark. And then he sent a dove out and the dove returned, but it returned with the olive branch in its beak. And from that point in history forward, that dove with an olive branch in its beak has remained even, interestingly, even in, in non-spiritual society, it's remained a, a known symbol of peace. Remember Solomon who builds the temple is a son of peace. And we, we emphasized that in our study last week. So this just emphasizing Christ is now the fulfillment of what Solomon could only point forward to. But the filling of Christ by the, 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 the visible representation of the Holy Spirit. Then we come to the filling of the church. And we've just recently studied this. and So I'll just reference it rather than turn to it. Acts chapter 2. What happens on the day of Pentecost? for the newly formed church. The Holy Spirit filled the room where the 120 disciples who represented the beginning of this new structure, new covenant structure that's going to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Um, They're in that upper room. The Holy Spirit comes, fills the room, and they see a representation of what? Little pillars of fire over each one of their heads, signifying just like God moved into the tabernacle, just like he moved into the temple, just like he moved into Christ, he's now moved into the church as well as Christ. So that's why I put a, you know, kind of a, a ring around Christ and the church because it's a two-stage moving in process. This combination, God moving into Christ, God moving into the church, is one that he will never ever, ever, for all of eternity, move out of either of these. He will never move out of Christ. And because we're connected to him in a spiritually living way, we have the assurance that he will never move out of us. 
like he did out of the tabernacle and like he did out of the temple. All right, so that's our setup with the big picture overview. And now what we have left is to look at, uh, I don't need need to erase that, it's fine. Uh, What we have left to look at is some of the details of the actual structure of the tabernacle as it functions then as a, um, as a spiritual uh, reference point uh, about Christ and the church. So understand this, the tabernacle story, and we'll, we'll review the same thing next week, the temple story, it's all pointing forward now to first and foremost Christ, but it's also pointing forward to the church. Why would it point forward to the church? Because the church is the dwelling place of God in the new covenant, just like the tabernacle and temple was in the old covenant. And uh, the church is the work of Christ. So all of these old covenant symbols, remember, point either forward to the person of Christ or they point forward to the work of Christ. And in this case, both tabernacle and the temple point forward to both the person and the work of Christ. They point forward to Christ and the church. Because it's really an image of salvation. It's a, it's a symbol of salvation and the, the blessing and benefit for those who are now included in God's house or God's household. All right, so big picture overview. The tabernacle was a tent structure. You've, you've got a, a top-down diagram here. You'll notice this, this outermost line defines what is called the courtyard. So if, um, if the tabernacle proper, the structure proper, is the house of God, then what would the courtyard correspond to in terms of our experiencing house and home? It's God's yard. How many of you live in a home as opposed to like an apartment? Okay, does your home have a yard? Or, or I mean, literally, it's just the boundary of your property is the, the wall of your house. We all have a yard outside of our house. The Lord, in the same way, has a courtyard. It's, it, I like the terminology of courtyard added to just simply yard because, of course, this is all ultimately pointing to a special house. This is a special house among all houses because it's the, the house of a royal personage. So you don't want to just say it's just a, a yard like anybody else's yard. It's a special and royal yard called a courtyard. In the courtyard, there were two items of furniture. The two items of furniture were the altar of sacrifice and the laver filled with water. So the altar of sacrifice was this this, uh, square structure with a flat top, and it um, it was like a gigantic griddle. Uh, I, I don't want to get too uh, familiar in my descriptions, but I do think it is helpful for us to think in terms of our own life experience. Um, we do most of our cooking when we cook. We do most of our cooking within our home, in what we call a kitchen, right? But we also have outside in our yard, we have a barbecue. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Many people do. God did. God had a barbecue 
right outside, not in the backyard like my barbecue. His barbecue is right in the front yard of his house. And what are barbecues usually for? They're for cooking what? Food, meat that you're going, I mean, because you generally wouldn't, I mean, you can, but you generally wouldn't bake bread on the barbecue. Uh, it's for cooking meat, and it's for, you know, the purpose of consuming the meat that you cook. So the question is, does God need to eat? Of course not. He has no physical needs in that sense because God is spirit. His uh, nature is a spiritual nature. He has no practical need for food. But what he's doing in this whole layout is he's revealing himself to his people in terms that they can understand because it's somewhat similar to their own lives. It's somewhat similar to their own homes. It's somewhat similar to the way they live their daily life. And so God made a barbecue out front of his house. And what is to be cooked on that barbecue? This is an altar of sacrifice. And sacrifices were to be offered on this. And as they were offered in terms of like, there were many different sacrifices. Eventually, in our study of Christ in the Old Testament, we're going to get to Christ revealed in the law. We're going to study that as an entire section onto itself. And we're going to look in more detail in the book of Leviticus at the the um, appointed sacrifices in the Old Testament law of God, law of Moses. Each one of those sacrifices ultimately pointing to Christ in different ways. But what was, what was uh, I'll just use this one as an example, what was important to understand about the altar of sacrifice, like the whole burnt offering that was offered there. So the children of Israel were to come into the courtyard, they were to approach the altar, And because they were not qualified to cook for God, um, the Lord had Levitical priests that were stationed at the altar that would meet an Israelite that was bringing a sacrificial animal to the Lord. And they would come into the courtyard, meet the Levite. The Levite would receive the animal from the offerer, the worshiper. And then the, the Levite would prepare that animal and then he would place it on the altar. A fire was stoked under the altar and that whole burnt offering was cooked on the surface of this altar. And one of the descriptions of that process was that as it was cooked, there rose from the altar what? A pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. Just like for, for those who ever have cooked barbecue yourself, one of the, you know, there's like, there's downside to cooking barbecue, which is you can sometimes get overwhelmed by the smoke. But the upside of cooking barbecue, if you like meat at all, is you get that aroma before you ever sit down to consume anything that you've just cooked. And it's a pleasing aroma to you. And in the same way, the Lord uh, wanted the children of Israel to understand when you're offering these sacrifices, it's like offering food to the Lord, but it's not food that he needs. It's food that he requires for their benefit. And there's a pleasing aroma to their faith and their obedience in bringing the sacrifices that the Lord has appointed. And what he's pleased about was not technically and actually 
the slaying of an animal, and it was not about the cooking of the animal. What was pleasing to him was the faith and obedience connected to how that sacrifice ultimately pointed to Christ. All right, so that's the first item of furniture. It was all about sacrifice. And of course, before it was placed on the altar, the sacrifice wasn't, wasn't cooked while it was still alive, was it? That would be inappropriate, and that would be certainly unnecessary for the suffering of the animal. So as the worshiper brought the sacrifice to the Levitical priest, the first job of the Levitical priest was to inspect the animal, number one, and what was he inspecting it for? Blemishes, flaws, because God didn't want any flawed sacrifice offered. That also ultimately, and we'll emphasize this more when we get to the laws of sacrifice, that's ultimately pointing to Christ in a very critically important aspect of the work of Christ and the person of Christ combined, which is Christ offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, and his sacrifice is only for us a saving sacrifice because his sacrifice was entirely unblemished, meaning he had never once sinned. Therefore, he is uniquely among all people in all of human history qualified to offer himself as a saving sacrifice. So it was critically important that they, they inspect the animals to make sure that they were unblemished. And then the Levitical priest would, would take a, a knife that was part of the implements of his service He would slit the throat of the animal, drain it of its blood, and then, uh, after it had died, of course, he would place it on the altar in order to cook it, and that pleasing aroma could uh, rise and um, be experienced by the symbolic nostrils of God. I say symbolic because does God actually have nostrils? I'm talking about God the Father, not God the Son. Does God the Father have nostrils? No. So, It really wasn't about smelling the the cooked meat, was it? It really was about his pleasing experience of seeing their faith and their obedience in action as it was anticipating Christ. Whether they fully understood that symbolic anticipation of Christ or not, most of them most likely did not. But nevertheless, that's what God understood was being portrayed, and that's what was particularly pleasing to him. All right, second item of furniture for the tabernacle was the uh, laver, which was a circular basin of water, also referred to as a sea of water, meaning it was a, it was a huge amount of water in this laver. And the, the laver was used for what reason? Washing. Who was it washing? Anyone that wanted to enter the house. They had to stop at the labor first. No one under any circumstances was ever allowed to come into God's house without having passed by the labor. And of course, they had to first pass by the altar of sacrifice and offer the appropriate sacrifice. Then they would travel from the altar of sacrifice to the labor and they would wash at the labor and then they would enter the house. And who was allowed to enter the house, by the way? So who would be washing? Levitical priests and only Levitical priests. Um, That aspect of the life of the tabernacle ultimately points to us, the church, because we are identified in the new covenant as 
um, taking the place of the Levites. You remember, uh, we don't have time to go through the whole story, but I'll just briefly describe. How did the Levites get chosen to be the servant of the Lord tribe in the house of God in both tabernacle and temple? At the, uh, at the event of the children of Israel coming to camp at the foot of Mount Sinai and the revelation to Moses of the tabernacle blueprint and the Ten Commandments. And Moses started down the mountain with the two tablets of the law. And before he could even get to the bottom of the mountain, he hears a a sound of a a celebration in the camp, but it's not a good celebration. It's a a corrupt celebration. And they're, they're worshiping while he's been on the mountain for 40 days. Aaron has, has at the uh, prodding of the people, uh, Aaron capitulates and uh, casts a golden calf for them to worship. And they're calling it their God. And they are uh, acting in a completely unrestrained way in the camp. And Moses comes down and he's furious. And rightly so, he's furious with the Lord's own fury toward this um, this rebellion. It would be like, it would be the, the closest similarity would be like someone on their wedding day, like a groom on the wedding day, discovering that his bride is being unfaithful immediately after the wedding ceremony. It, it's, it was that level of inappropriate. And um, so what Moses does is he calls out to the whole camp of Israel, whoever is on the Lord's side, you know, strap on your sword and come stand with me. And out of all the 12 tribes, only the tribe of Levi responded obediently. And they came to Moses and they said, we will stand with you. And then they enact judgment upon the other 11 tribes. And of course, they were the tribe uh, physically related to both Moses and Aaron, who were of the tribe of Levi. But for that reason, Levi was separated from the the other tribes. The Lord, during that whole time period, though, described and said his intention was that all of Israel should be his priests, but because of their disobedience in that circumstance, God only selected one tribe out of 12 to function as his servants in his house. So as a result, only the Levites are allowed to enter the tabernacle and the temple. You and I have now taken their place. We are identified in the new covenant by uh, Peter, as in First Peter chapter two, as a royal priesthood, we are we are no longer identified as Levites. We are a a higher level, a greater level of priesthood servants of the Lord. And which members of the church qualify to function in that royal priesthood? Every single born again, true member of the true church functions in this. Uh, in this priesthood role. So they're allowed to come in to the house of God. All the rest of the Israelites are not allowed to ever enter the house of God. They're allowed to camp around it. They're in covenant relationship with the Lord who lives in his house, but they're, they're not invited into God's house. Only the Levites are allowed entrance. So the Levites would then, as I said, offer the sacrifice. They would go to the labor. They would get washed. What does that washing signify? You know, there are some theologians that want to connect it, and rightly so. I don't, I don't think this is an, uh, an, a, uh, an inaccurate connection. Some want to uh, relate it to our water baptism experience. Uh, certainly, after our first encounter 
of believing in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in a saving way, which would be equivalent to us encountering the Lord at his altar. Um, the next, very next thing in our personal walk with the Lord, our personal experience of the Lord, after believing on the cross in a saving way, and we're now born again, the very next thing is every true believer is to be baptized in water. So I'm fine with that connection. But this labor was not a one-time washing. And from that point forward, the Levites could just enter and leave the house of God whenever they want. How often were they to wash? Every time they entered the house. Every time they entered the house. And so this is more similar to the very familiar story in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We don't have time to turn to it. But in John 13, as Jesus is celebrating a last meal with his disciples before going to the cross, in the upper room, we know that he did something very unusual that night as they were all preparing to eat the Passover meal together. Um, what did Jesus do at the beginning of the meal? He got up from his place. He took his outer garment off. He girded himself with a servant's towel, uh, the lowliest of servants in the household. He girded himself with the towel. He took a basin of water, and then he went around the table to each one of his disciples and washed their feet. And in doing so, that was a portrayal of something that was commonly done in Jewish households whenever someone entered the house. Why was that so important? Like you and I, I don't have a, 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 a water feature at the front door of my house. If you come to visit me at my house, I do not have a water feature where I meet you at the house and I say, okay, stop here, shoes off. You need to wash your feet before you come into my house. I don't do that. Why? Why don't I do that? Because I, I don't like dirt in my house. I don't like grime in my house. But why don't I? Because we, in our culture, we wear socks and we wear shoes, right? And we just have kind of come to accept that when we have guests in our house, there's going to be some carrying in of outside grime into our private dwelling places. And then when people leave, we go around and we vacuum up the remnants of their visit. That's just the way we do it in our culture. That's not how they did it in Jewish culture in the ancient world. People didn't wear socks and they didn't wear shoes. What did they wear? They, wear, they wore sandals. And they walked through environments that were not like uh, paved and, and somewhat clean and pristine. They walked through, like if they're walking through the desert, what, what are they going to get on their feet if they're walking with sandals? They're going to get sand. They're going to get dirt. Uh, later, when they lived in cities, um, you know, cities got pretty, pretty ugly in terms of cleanliness in the ancient world because whenever there was um, garbage to throw out, people just opened their front door and they threw the garbage out into the street. And then, you know, if it was a, a, a city that could afford it, they would have people come along and clean that up. Uh, we just don't do any of that anymore. So it was very important, whether they're moving through the desert or whether they're living in a city or a similar kind of environment, um, they would have a labor of water, a basin, at the front entryway to their house. 
And it was the host's responsibility, whether he did it personally or we could, he could afford a servant to do it for him, to have someone greet you at the front door in order to wash the feet to ensure that you're not bringing the dirt of the outside world into the personal and private dwelling place of the one that you're visiting. And so the Lord was portraying this in his home. This is, as Jesus emphasized that night at the uh, upper room foot washing situation, uh, do you remember what he said? In fact, let's just real quickly turn over there. There's a detail in this that I don't want us to miss. As, um, as he's just washed, I'll start in verse 5, uh, John 13, 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand, meaning there's a spiritual element to this that Peter wasn't getting. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. The reason why he didn't want him to wash his feet is that he understood that Jesus was in a superior position to him and it was not appropriate for the superior to wash the feet of the the inferior. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. And he goes on to uh, separate um, Judas from this uh, spiritual description. The point is that this is a sanctifying element here. And then we could take other passages later in the New Testament that describe the washing of the water of the word, meaning that even after our encounter of the cross, we pick up just by traveling through this world, walking in a fallen, corrupted society that surrounds us. We pick up grime, not so much grime on our hearts, but grime on our feet as we're passing through the world. And when we enter the house of God in our uh, daily service to the Lord, the Lord wants us to be sure to stop and wash the feet so that we're not carrying those worldly influences into his house. All right. Now, house proper in the rest of our time. Uh, God's house was fairly simple in its layout. It was a two-room house. How many rooms do you have in your house? Many, many, right? Multiple rooms, various things. Like, like I mentioned, there's no kitchen in this house. Just two rooms. So there's an outer room, which was called the holy place. And then there's the inner room, which was called the holy of holies. And I've recently described it this way, and I think it's a good description. I'm just going to stick with it. This is the the public area of God's house. And this innermost room is the private area of God's house. In our houses, what do we call the most private areas? You could say a bathroom, but there are no bathrooms in God's house. Why, why, Why isn't there a bathroom in God's house? He doesn't need one. And it, it serves no revelatory purpose because God doesn't produce any waste. Do you understand? So there's no bathroom in his house. So other than a bathroom, the most private area of our house, we would call our bedroom. So the Holy of Holies is like a bedroom in a certain sense. It's the most private area. Um, and maybe I'll work my way backwards from here. 
so what do, we, what do you do in your bedroom, generally speaking, on a nightly basis? You lay down on a bed in order to rest, to go to sleep. Why do you sleep every night? You need to recharge your batteries. You, you run out of energy. You're designed that way. You live in a fallen world. You live in a fallen body. When the Lord returns in the second coming and you are given a resurrection body like his, will you ever need a bedroom again? The answer is no. You will never sleep again, not even one single minute after you receive your resurrection body. It's an eternally supercharged body that never wears out, never wears down, never gets tired, never gets weary, never gets sick, never gets dead. It's, it's an amazing body. But in the meantime, you go into your innermost room in order to recharge your batteries. You have to do it every night. God in his innermost room only has one item of furniture and it's not a bed. Because God, as scripture proclaims, never sleeps and he never slumbers. He is eternally awake, eternally alert, eternally paying attention to his concerns and the, the um, things on his personal agenda. There is, however, a chair in God's innermost room, the bedroom, which is not for him a bedroom because why? No bed. So his is a throne room. He is a royal personage and he has a chair. And what do kings sit on? They don't sit on regular chairs. They sit on thrones. So this one item of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. And it was... It was a square structure that effectively was functioning as a, as a box. It's an empty box, except God wanted something in the box. So why would God have a box to sit on? Because he wanted to fill it with specific things. He chose to fill his box with three things. He filled it with the two tablets of the law, which contained the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on the mountaintop and, and literally written by the finger of God upon the stone, uh, which just is a signification of how powerful God is. He took his finger and carved into the stone the Ten Commandments himself. And the, a jar filled with manna and Aaron's rod or staff which we've already studied in our um, in fact we studied both the manna and the rod in our um, last section of studies on Christ in the Old Testament when we looked at Christ in Old Testament things so why these three things God wanted represented in the throne because ultimately who sits upon the throne right now Christ himself sits upon the throne. So this is a symbolic portrayal of Christ sitting upon his throne and God wanted to reveal certain special qualities about the throne and those special qualities were that Christ is the, the righteousness of God um, in full representation, which is what the Ten Commandments are pointing forward to. They're just a summary of God's righteous standards and Christ himself fulfills that, that expression of righteousness. 
Uh, the jar of manna, of course, manna was bread from heaven, which is God's provision for his people. Jesus, um, you, know, you know from John chapter 6 that Jesus identified himself as the bread of life that came down from heaven. And he personally, in John 6, made the connection between himself as the bread of life and the manna that God provided in the days of Moses. Uh, but with, with himself as the bread of life in a greater expression than the manna, which just is showing that um, God's provision of eternal life is found in the person of his son. And then Aaron's rod we studied, which is that this almond branch, which functioned as a staff for Aaron, budded and uh, produced almonds. It came back to life, which uh, the staff is a symbol of authority and the almonds are a symbol of resurrection because they were the, it was the tree of first fruits. Uh, Paul makes that connection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and all of that signifying that God's authority in Christ is connected to his resurrection. It's, it's in the resurrection of Christ that God proves once and for all that Christ and Christ alone is qualified to sit upon this seat. Now, on top of the box, because if you have an open box and you go to sit on it, what's going to happen? You're going you're to sit into the box. God doesn't want that. So he had a lid for the box. The lid for the box was called Mercy Seat. And this term translates into the New Testament uh, Greek um, in the reference to it as the theological term propitiation. which is a theological concept describing one of the great accomplishments of the cross. There are many things that were accomplished on the cross, but one of them was propitiation, which it's a word which means the, the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the demands of the law. The law demanded this. If you violate any one um, standard of the law, then you are required to experience the full consequences of the law. Propitiation intervenes and satisfies those requirements by blood sacrifice. So the lid of the box was called the mercy seat or the propitiation because Moses would go in or, or the high priest would go in after Moses in all the, all the following years. And on the day of atonement, he would enter beyond the curtain in front of the box and then he would take a particular kind of branch, a hyssop branch, he would dip it in a basin of blood all the way back to this altar of sacrifice, which was carried by the high priest all the way through the structure. And then he would sprinkle that directly on the lid of the box. And in doing so, the lid of the box transforms the box and that lid upon which God symbolically sat from a judgment seat to a mercy seat. It's only a mercy seat because of the blood that sprinkled it. Had the blood not sprinkled it, had Christ not sacrificed himself on the cross, if any of us were to approach the throne of God on the day of judgment, we would receive only the judgment we, would, we deserve. But because that blood has been sprinkled and because we believe it in a saving way by the grace of God, then when we approach the throne of God on the final day, our approach is approach to the throne, which is now described in Hebrews, 
for as a throne of mercy and a throne of grace because it's been transformed for us. It remains a throne of judgment for the rest of the world, but for us it is a throne of mercy and judgment. All right, and I, I, I'm going to have to speed up and get the last little part of our uh, symbolic study here. The front room, which is the public space, still only the Levites allowed to enter, but nevertheless, this is where the servants of the Lord actually served him in practical, functional ways. There were three items of furniture there, three items. Those were the, um, the, the, um, the lampstand, which is the single and only light source, which we've seen from our most recent study ultimately points forward to the church. But before it points forward to the church, it points to Christ. Because the lampstand is the only light source. What did Jesus say about himself in one of his great I am declarations? I am the light of the world. And then he turns around and says concerning his disciples, you are the light of the world. He's not saying I was and now you are. He's saying I am and you are because we both represent the truth of the light of the gospel and that's the only light that exists in this world is the truth of the gospel. All right, so um, the other item of furniture on the other long wall, the opposite long wall, and by the way, the, the uh, lampstand was to be situated in a specific way so that the light of the lampstand lit a specific area like a spotlight effect. What was it to light? The area immediately in front of it. And so a spotlighting effect took place this way. There were seven branches. And all of this, by the way, I wish we had time, but we have studied this before. All of this, the lampstand is also functioning as a symbol of a tree of life. It's a source of life and it's a a source of light. But it's spotlighting the area immediately in front of it, which was the table of showbread. And on that table, it was, this, this is God's dinner table. On that table, uh, of course, you know, the, the meat was being cooked outside on the barbecue, on the altar, but on this table was to be baked by the Levitical priest 12 loaves of bread every day, every day, every day. Fresh bread every day. And when the end of the day came, they were to take the bread off the table and were, were they just like chuck it out in the back for the rats to eat? No, the, the Levites took that bread home and ate it themselves, but it had to be fresh baked every day, new bread replacing it. And symbolically, it's for the Lord. Practically, he allowed the Levites to eat it, but practically it's for the Lord. And so, of course, again, just like the manna conveyed this in the innermost room, the, the showbread conveyed the same thing. Jesus is the bread of life. But why 12 loaves? One representing each one of the 12 tribes of Israel so that God's provision is for all of his people, those that are in covenant relationship with him. All right, one last item of furniture. This was just immediately outside the dividing partition between the inner room and the outer room. The dividing partition was, of course, a curtain. And that curtain... Um, let me just give you a couple of, of uh, verses of scripture about the curtain. Um, I don't have time to turn to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. In Matthew 27, we know that when Jesus died on the cross, 
He died just outside the city, but inside the city and inside the temple, something amazing took place that had never, ever happened in the history of the tabernacle or the history of the curtain. What happened? The veil, the curtain that separated these two rooms, it was a gigantic curtain. I mean, we're talking about giant curtain and it was torn in two in a very specific way from top to bottom. Why top to bottom? It was signifying symbolically in the death of Christ that this was heaven's doing to take away the curtain that separated these rooms because the private room also points to heaven where the throne of God is and the outer room, the public space, points to the world in which we live. And so for us who live in the world, even though we were royal priests, we could never hope to enter this innermost room because only the high priest was ever allowed to enter that innermost room. None of the Levites were and were in the role of the Levites, even though we have a new and greater service to the Lord, a new and greater priesthood. We would not be allowed unless God removed the curtain and made a way into the innermost room, a way of approach for all of his priesthood servants to approach his throne, to approach what now is his mercy and grace seat. So then the second passage is um, Hebrews 10, verse 20, which specifically ties the tearing of the curtain to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And I'll let you read that in your own time. All right, so the last item of furniture just in front of the curtain was the, another altar. This is the altar of incense. And the priests were to light incense, which would then fill the entire house with this fragrant aroma. And this points to, in Hebrews chapter 7, the continuing ministry of Christ in what we call intercession. So the primary ministry of Christ was fulfilled in the, in the cross and the resurrection, but he does have a continuing element of his ministry. It's a twofold element. One is he rules from his throne in heaven, but he also ever lives, as Hebrews 7 tells us, he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And there are many places in scripture where the uh, imagery of the smoke of rising incense is, um, is uh, symbolically connected to prayer and intercession. Now, who else intercedes besides Christ? You and I. So the church intercedes. So this points forward to not just the intercession of Jesus, but extended beyond that. And he's, he's interceding while we're interceding. It's both at the same time connected. Remember, he's the head, we're the body. Uh, this is pointing forward to the, the wonderful uh, aroma of the incense of prayers that are pleasing to God being offered on behalf of his people and his purposes in the lives of his people. All right, so if you were to do a detailed study of all of this that we covered tonight, I mean, we could easily take six months to do this. So I know I went really fast and I jammed a ton of information into the time that we had and I even ran over a few minutes I appreciate you hanging in there with me in the run over, but I wanted to, for the sake of our study, just do a single big picture overview of the whole thing. 
And then Lord willing, next week, we'll come back and look at, okay, how is the temple like this? And how is the temple different than this? Because each one of these movements from tabernacle to temple, from temple to Christ, from Christ to the church, these are progressive movements. God's purpose is getting greater and greater as he progresses through redemption of history, not lesser and lesser. All right, God bless you. Thanks for coming tonight.